Today's reading is Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lay them in possession to the house of God? With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have, have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemies? As with the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lair, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Dee. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited for where God has us this morning. And um, I want to introduce uh, my good friend this morning, came down from Peoria, as I said earlier, to preach um, to us. We've, uh, my wife and I have known John and his wife, Teresa, for a long time, I think about 14 or 15 years. And um, John is a godly man that I, I look up to in a lot of ways and uh, um, and very encouraged and, again, excited to hear what God has put on his heart as he has uh, taken the time to be here with us this morning. So would you guys go ahead and uh, give a little round of applause and welcome up John. <laughs> I am thankful to be here today for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of the reasons I'm thankful is 
Uh, as Dave already mentioned, my wife and I did our undergrad here at the University of Arizona in the late 90s. My wife played on the softball team at U of A and um, had a great time here. And then we came on staff with Athletes in Action, which is the athletic branch of the crew ministry, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, um, crew. And uh, spent a couple years in Phoenix and then a couple years in Ohio um, in our initial training. And then we had the opportunity to come back and serve at the University of Arizona. And so we came back as staff with AI and served there for seven years uh, in the McHale building. So logged a lot, a lot of hours uh, in that room uh, talking to athletes about Jesus. And so we have a very special place in our heart. Um, we have three kids. My middle kid, we moved here when he was, I think, four weeks old or three weeks old from Ohio. And so he grew up his first seven years here in Tucson. And then we are now living in Phoenix. Um, and when we moved there, like, he didn't understand, like, why, like, he was starting to see sun, sun devil stuff everywhere. Like, and he didn't understand. He can't, like, taunt the kid. Like, you can't say, why are you wearing that? Like, we're in Phoenix now. You can't do that, son. Like, because that was his norm when he lived in Tucson. He was wildcat all the way. Um, and so it's been an interesting transition up there, but we are excited to be down here with you today. Um, the other reason I'm thankful for being here this morning is just what we got to do. Um, the reality of what's happened in the last five days, um, to sit with God's people and be honest with what's going on, I think is massively important to my soul. So being in here with God's people, even though I don't know hardly any of you, is refreshing for me. Um, there's something about that lament of saying like, oh, how long, oh Lord, that I think we can do collectively, but when you're intimately tied to details of what has happened, like it's, it's different, isn't it? Like when you know people in different communities that are suffering, it does something different to your heart, to your mind. And I think it's so healthy for us to collectively come together even if we don't have those relationships with people, whether it's in Orlando, in the gay community, whether it's the, the minority community, whether it's the police, like, like, can we understand and can we walk through that people are hurting? And when you have people you know intimately in those communities, like, I could barely stand up. Like, I'm, I'm pretty raw this morning. I'm pretty emotionally charged, as some of you might be as well. So this might be a hot mess. I don't know. Um, I'm going to do my best to stick to where the text points us because I think it's, um, and again, in God's providence and his sovereignty that we're looking at the book of Psalms and redemption. And like, I, I think there's a couple different ways you could go if you said, okay, we're going to go offline and we're going to do something because of what happened um, in the events in the last week. But this is definitely in the top three where I would go in the Bible based on what's happened because of what we're going to find here in the Bible. So let me pray just briefly um, that I would calm down a little bit um, and we'd be able to listen and God would instruct and teach us through his word and his spirit. Let me pray. Um, Father, thanks God that you are a God that doesn't leave us here um, uninstructed, God, but you give us the things we need to walk in your kingdom, God. You give us your word, you give us your people, you give us your spirit to counsel us, to encourage us, to instruct us. I pray for our time this morning that we would walk out differently because of those things, because of your word and your truth, because of who you are, then we walked in. Be with us, Jesus, in this time. We love you and we need you. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So if you have a Bible, um, you can open it up. There will be the text here. If you don't have a Bible, I believe we have some. Dave, is that right? Slip your hand up if you need a copy of the scriptures. Um, Also, if your native tongue is Spanish, I believe there's some Spanish Bibles as well, yes? And so if that's one of you, because we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43, it's it's good to have it in front of your face or on your phone or whatever that looks like for you. So um, open it up to Psalm 42 that we just read. And the reason... um, We combined these two chapters, Psalm 42 and 43, is that when you do any studying, the majority of scholars actually haven't found one that doesn't agree that these are actually, this is one set of scripture. Um, They don't know why it got broken into Psalm 42 and 43. Some of the reason they believe that is because there's no header in Psalm 43, but really the reason is because verse 5 of 42, verse 11 of 42, and then verse 5 of 43 are all the same words. And really, there's this collective, almost chorus of a response. And one of the things, if you look in your Bibles, the heading that talks about, some of you have the heading that says, why are you downcast on my soul? But then right underneath that, it should say, to the choir master at Meskill, of the sons of Korah. Now, this is, this is really important to know this in your Bible. This is not something you just skip over, and here's why. It's because some psalms, if you guys are understanding, if you've been here for a while through this summer, some songs are instructive, right? Psalm 1, which kind of sums up all of the psalm, talk about blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but he trusts in the law of the Lord, right? That's an instructive song to say, look, this, this, is, this is good instruction. If you live this way, these are the types of things that will happen to you. And so there's instructive psalms, but then there's songs that are actually psalms that were meant to be sung collectively as God's people. And this is an example of a song as we see that it's instructed to the choir master. And the sons of Korah, if you know anything about Old Testament, you know that um, there were 12 tribes and the tribe of Levite were pulled away specifically for a duty to be the priest, to handle the business of God. And a subset of that that tribe of Levite were these sons of Korah. Because they all had, there were three different sons within that Levite tribe. And so they were doing different things. Some would handle the teaching. Some would handle, um, similar to what we do in church. Some handle worship. Some handle volunteer things. And so these sons of Korah were specific to music. And so this psalm is not just somebody's prayer journal of how they're processing reality with God. It may have started in that, the feelings are there, but this was actually an instruction for God's people to sing corporately. I think that's important. As we're going to talk through, what does it look like to corporately weep with those who weep and lament? And so that really helps us frame our understanding as we continue to read. And really what I want to do is I want to look at it in really kind of three sections. And they kind of spill over into each other. So um, uh, let me just lay down what what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Psalm 42, 1 through 4. And we're going to look at the reality of longing for God. And really trying to answer the question, do you know how to emotionally assess your soul? Do you know how to do that? And why is that important? Why does the Bible tell us that that is important? Do you know how to emotionally assess your soul? And then we'll look at verse 5 again, which is kind of this this chorus that happens over and over again. And then we'll go to the next section. We'll look at 6 through 10. 
and really looking at what does it mean to lament? What does this psalmist tell us about lament corporately? Do you know how to lament for your soul after you assess it emotionally? Do you know how to lament? How do you, in a right way, come to God with how you're feeling? And then in this last section, verse 43, chapter 43, verses 1 through 4, we'll look at what it means to have confidence in God, a hope in God. Do you know how to find hope for your soul when all your circumstances look hopeless? And the psalmist does this so beautifully. The more I'm um, dissecting this this last week, the more I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. The psalmist holds this beautiful tension of the right hemisphere of the brain and the left hemisphere of the brain, right? The right is kind of this emotion and feeling, and then the left is kind of this thinking and fact and logic, and he holds in tension both of these really, really well. And we're going to see that this morning. So let's look at this first section, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read, and then we'll kind of unpack it. Verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and nights. While they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with, shout, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here's some of the things we pull out from this section. I would say that this psalmist is, is not somebody that feels connected to God and they just want to grow deeper in their relationship with God. Some of you know that. You know you've been there. You're walking with Jesus and it's good. But man, you want a deeper connection with God. I don't think that's the assessment here. I think it's clear that the psalmist here feels distant from God. They feel disconnected from God. They feel like, God, I, I don't understand. Like, I, I want to thir- I want a drink of your water. He uses this imagery of a deer panting when you're really thirsty to drink of the stream. But we see in verse 3, the only thing quenching his thirst are his own tears. He feels like God is not supplying that quench. I feel distant, spiritually depressed from God. Do do you realize that the Bible says that's okay to assess that? You can be in a dark place of your soul. God is not afraid of those words. To be able to understand that in verse 3, again, he he talks about he eats the like. Like this last week, I'm, I was sitting over here with Dave because um, I can't sit by my wife right now when we're singing and lamenting. Because I got be a puddle on the floor. When everything began to come to fruition this last week and kind of catching each other up to speed and finally getting a moment to process on Thursday, we just sat on the kitchen floor. I just wept for our friends, the reality of what's happening to them. And not that it hasn't happened for years and years and years, 
but the spotlight that's now on it and how they're having to deal with their emotions. And you know that feeling when you're right on the edge, you could just stub your toe and it's like a fountain of tears come out. I think the Bible is giving validity to that emotion. That that's okay. And then in verse 3, to add insult to injury, he talks about the reality that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting these tears. And then people are saying, you know, where, where is God? Like, he doesn't seem to be evident. Clearly, he's not around. Yeah, he's not around. Why are you following him? So when you already feel in this deep place, you have other people in your ear kind of confirming, like, what you're really feeling. And that's a really hard tension to fight that. And he's dealing with that emotionally. He's feeling the distance from the Lord. And this is why I feel like these emotions, um, the psalmist points to these. Again, he doesn't negate the emotions. Sometimes we swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. We can kind of say, and especially in the younger generation, it seems to be all about emotion. Like, I just, you know, I just wasn't feeling it. I just didn't do it because I just, my, my daughter, we're, <laughs> yesterday, last night, she's nine, and I'm like, you didn't clean up what I asked you to clean up. She goes, yeah, but I'm hot and I'm tired. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to validate that feeling, but you need to be obedient and go do what I asked you to do. And so it doesn't mean we swing to all feelings, like feelings are everything, but the problem is we swing to the other end of the extreme a lot of times, and we totally discount the feelings. And we say, well, I don't even want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Go do what I said to do. And the psalmist, I believe, is tapping into this reality that, like, we need to assess our emotions. Like, how are you at doing that? When somebody says, how are you doing? Like, we have to have a feelings chart on my refrigerator because... I need words to help me understand how am I really feeling in this moment? And that those feelings point to something deeper, as we see here in the song. I think uh, emotions are, again, um, just let me give you a quick apologetic on emotions if you're just going, well, this doesn't make it. I don't want to be all touchy-feely. Um, there's a man named Kurt Thompson who came and spoke at Surge which is the leadership development for, for redemption, a bunch of other churches, and he came up to Phoenix um, last year. He's written a couple books, and one of his books is called The Anatomy of the Soul. He is a neuroscientist. That's what he does. He's based out of D.C., and he's written a couple books, one of them, The Anatomy of the Soul, and I, I'm into kind of subtitles. I like that because I feel like it's cheating. Like, it really tells me what the book's about before I buy it. This is the longest subtitle I've ever read in a book. is that can transform your life and relationships. Um, it is a fascinating book. And in chapter 7, he talks specifically about emotions and what happens in the science of your brain with your emotions. Listen to what he says. He says, One re reason we underestimate the importance of emotion in our relationships with God and others is that we have an incomplete understanding of its role, specifically how feelings are experienced and expressed. He gives three Understanding to this. First one, emotion is something that you can regulate and that regulates you. Your awareness of it 
how much you pay attention to it enables you to harness it for the purpose of growth in your relationship with God and with others. Number two, emotion, emotional states are not influenced or created in isolation. Your emotional states have a profound impact on others, especially your children. The more you pay attention to your primary emotional states, the more you will be able to truly and effectively perceive others' emotional states as well. So if you don't do this work, men and women, you're not going to know how to parent your kids well emotionally if you've not tapped into that yourself. The third thing, emotion is not debatable. If your daughter senses the feeling of joy, shame, disappointment, or some general form of distress, that is, in fact, what she feels. Again, he's talking from a very scientific perspective, what happens in the chemicals of your brain. He continues, primary and categorical emotion, emotional states are not opinions to be countered. They are true experiences that require attention. He's talking later in the chapter about Psalms. He unpacks Psalm 51 and David's emotions, how he's feeling. He says this, I suggest that those who organized the canon of Scripture knew that they were, what they were doing when they placed the Psalms in the center of the Bible. From the perspective of neuroscience, this book is the perfect symbolic position, pointing to the full integration of the mind as we bring together both language, the left hemisphere, and emotional states, the right hemisphere, in beauty of poetry. This last thing from him. If you do not attend to the categorical emotions like joy, anger, shame, your relationship with God will be limited. Not only will you be unable to share your feelings with him, but you'll be functionally disconnected from his feelings to you. Do you get that? You'll be disconnected from what God wants to give you in feelings. If you don't tap into this issue of emotion, I think the psalmist does it beautifully here. He's honest with God. He's telling God he's feeling disconnected. He's sad. Maybe he's angry. God desires for us to understand those emotions to be fully human, to be connected with him and with others. If you haven't seen the movie Inside Out, I highly recommend it, the Pixar film. Um, they do such a beautiful job of displaying the different emotions and what happens in development. Um, and it's like, I don't think, especially for the majority culture, the white people, I don't think we know how to do sadness or anger a lot. Well, we know how to do anger. I don't think we know how to do sadness very well. And when I think of that movie, if you remember Joy, the emotional Joy, she's always trying to push sadness in the corner, right? At one point, she physically draws a line like a circle in chalk and says, okay, sadness, this is where you stand for the day. Because Joy can't deal with the reality of sadness. And if we negate those things, if we push those emotions to the corner, we're not going to be fully connected with God. And the psalmist is clear in his emotions. He's clear about how he's feeling. But then the beautiful thing, again, is he doesn't hold to the, the emotions being the slave of his heart. In verse 5, you see it. He's actually kind of talking himself out of those emotions. He's taking those emotions and those thoughts captive, and he's making it obedient. 
He says, why are you downcast on my soul and why so much turmoil within me? I don't understand why I'm feeling like this, but I can't negate that I am feeling this way. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I don't praise him right now. It's too hard for me. I'm too disconnected. I'm at such a dark place. I don't feel like I can praise him, but again, I will praise him. The psalmist is banking on something in the future, the truth of God in the future. My hope in God, I shall praise him again, my salvation, my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. Verse six, he starts into verse six again, this idea of now he's assessed himself emotionally, now he can begin to lament or express himself to God and to the community. And lament is simply a a passionate express of, of grief or sorrow. Verse six again. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon from Mount Miziar. And so he's saying, there's a distance again. There's a distance from me and God. Right at the time, people would worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And he is clearly not in location to the temple as he is mentioning geographical places where he is far from the temple. He feels far from God. Verse 7, deep calls to deep, the roar of your waterfalls at the breakers your waves have gone over me. When you feel like you're in this distress, this dark place, and you feel like maybe I'm going to get some hope, maybe you get over the wave, you feel like, okay, and then, bam, another thing smashes on you. That's what I felt like this week. When everything came out with Alton Sterling and no. Okay, maybe we can get... No, then what happened in Minnesota? It's just like pounding and pounding and pounding on you, your circumstances. You think you're going to get a little hope, but then things get pounded on top of you. And it's interesting to me, he uses this, this language, the deep calls the deep, and thinking of that metaphor of just the idea of your circumstances feeling so deep. They're like as deep as the ocean. Like you can't even you can't even fathom how deep my hurt is. You can't I, I can't you can't even fathom how painful it is. And this is interesting in this. Listen to this. This is interesting. All whose breakers, whose waterfalls, your waterfalls. He doesn't say my enemy's waterfalls. He even in this moment of grief and not understanding still believes in God's sovereignty. He still believes that God controls all the ocean. And so, God, I don't understand why these things are happening, but I'm going to trust that you're in control. I think that's massively important in the midst of lamenting our soul, as we even confessed here this morning. And then in verse 8, so he's talking about the waves crashing over him. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So again, he's talking himself into the reality of like, even though I don't feel it, I'm going to trust that God's good. I'm going to trust that God is good. Verse 9, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? It's interesting to me, he uses the phrase rock. It's just like if you're out in the ocean and there is nothing solid to stand on as deep as you can even imagine, a rock, something that you can put your feet on. He's saying, that is God. I still don't feel like he's there, but I know that that's the truth. There is a rock out there somewhere for me to stand on that's God, and I'm going to trust the waves crashing on me because God is changing me, but eventually I need to get back to standing on the rock. And men and women, I don't know how people are processing this reality without the hope of Jesus. What's happened the last five days? Without a rock to stand on, it's just this shallow form of like, making yourself feel like you can do, like I can't even fathom the reality of like, well, we'll just be activists and we'll like, we need Jesus. Like he is the only answer to the darkness of sin in all of our hearts. Now, as you anchor yourself in Jesus, that now allows you to do those things, advocation, social justice. But if it's not anchored in Jesus, I don't know how they're going to make it. It's a really sad thing for me. And again, as we talk about this issue of lamenting, of weeping with those who weep, I just think it's really important to understand the reality of empathy as we talk about mourning, as we talk about lamenting. So as you think of your context, whether it's what happened in the last five days or just in general, what's, if your friend is suffering from something, I want to watch a video from um, a sociologist named Brene Brown. She talks about this idea of empathy. Go ahead and watch this. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? I don't think that's a verb but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. 
John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So when you think about lamenting, and even the things that happened this last week, like, can you, can you take notes from what happened here? Like, and not that you go down in the hole with them. I don't know what it means to be a black man in America. I can't step down in that space and say, like, I, I've been here too. I, I can't. And it's disrespectful to say, like, oh, I, I know what you're going through. No, I don't. But I know who does. Right? Jesus is the most misrepresented person in all of history. Can I sit in that space with somebody, even if I don't go down, and just take notes from that of like, man, I'm sorry. And just don't say anything. I don't know how to do that on social media. I don't know what that looks like. You just put a bunch of space bars and that's your stat. I don't know. Like, I don't know. But even when you look at lamenting or weeping with those who weep, just as a minister, regardless of the circumstances, like look at Job in chapter 2. He's going through this intense pain. His friends do it right at the beginning of Job in chapter 2. They come with them. It says they sat with him for seven days and nobody spoke a word because there was great grief. That ministered to Job's heart. And then they started talking and it got all messed up. So as you empathize with people, even this situation we're dealing with, could you take notes from that? Could you understand, listen, I don't have to defend myself, my position, what's right. Can you just say they are in pain? That group, the black community is in pain. Police officers that were shot, they are in pain. Can you sit in that pain with people and not try to fix it? Jesus is the one that needs to fix it. And I don't know if you've done this, white people in the room, like the all lives matter, like all lives matter. Like, and, and maybe you're well-intentioned in that phrase, but just know that that is not helpful. It belittles the grief that people are going through. And I don't want to get into a political, oh, but like, let me just read something. The Gospel Coalition, just this last year, had a forum, and they were talking about this issue. And there's a man named... Uh, Micah Edmondson, and he talks about this issue. What, what is even the Black Lives Matter thing? What does it even mean? He gives history on it. He gives context on it. And then he says this. And again, this is all under, if you, go, if you want to read more about it, the Gospel Coalition, um, the title is, Does Black Lives Matter, the, the New Civil Right Movement? It's a fascinating article. I would, I would recommend you read it. Listen to what he says about the phrase Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter does not mean only Black Lives Matter, it means black lives matter too. It's a contextual statement like saying children's lives matter too. That doesn't mean adult lives don't matter. But in a culture that demeans and disparages them, we have to understand that to say forthrightly and particularly that children's lives, they do matter. 
In the face of historic and contemporary context, that has uniquely disparaged black life as not worth valuing or protecting in the same way as others. They are saying black lives matter just as much as every other life. Ironically, saying black lives matter is really a contextual way of saying all lives matter. So just before you get on Facebook and just start blasting out your thoughts, again, um, be slow to speak. Be an educator. If you don't agree with that, like, I don't know if you're living in America. You haven't really looked into the real issues. So as we look at the psalm, this public lament, like, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be corporately frustrated, to not understand. That's okay. We don't have to fix it all. And there's process for us to do that. And again, he ends that chapter in verse 11 as, as talking himself out of how he feels. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so much turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I again shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Then in verse 43, verse 1, he again he starts to turn the corner of beginning to believe the truth he knows to be true. He says in verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. I love that phrase and I hate that phrase. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. You know why I don't like that? Because I want to defend me. I don't think, it's a trust issue. Am I really trusting in God's sovereignty that he's going to make all things right, that judgment will be paid? No, 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 God, I don't think you understand. These people are saying this stuff about me. Like, I need to defend myself. And the psalmist is saying, no, like, you be my defense, God. You vindicate me, oh God. Not myself, but he's trusting in God for that process. Verse 2, you, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Again, he's going back and forth with this wrestle of how he's feeling and what he knows to be true. Why do I go about the morning because of the oppression of my enemy? Verse 3, send out your light and truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my exceeding joy, and I will begin, or I will praise you, with the leer, oh God, my God. He comes back to the truth in verse 3. And I love the imagery of light in all of the Bible, especially in the Psalms, that the Bible is a light unto our path. It guides us, it directs us to that truth. Not to negate your emotions again and just throw them out, ah, well, that doesn't matter. With intention, God, what, what are you doing in me that's making me feel this way that points me back to you, that points me to your truth, and then help change me to believe that? Love the passage in the gospel where Mark, where Jesus comes and he's interacting with his man, and can you heal my daughter? And he's saying, I, I guess you can heal him. And Jesus says, you guess? Like, what, what do you mean? Like, and he just honestly, listen, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Like I, I'm being honest in my emotions, and God, and Jesus, he understands that, and he validates that in that passage. 
And I think we see it all throughout the Psalms. And again, this beautiful tension or wrestle, this tug of war between your emotions and your facts, I think is what makes us human. And at the end of the movie, if, if Inside Out, if you haven't seen it, this is a total spoiler alert. Like, close your ears or something. But, like, the end of the movie, this girl's running away because all her emotions, she's changing, she's growing up, they're moved to a new city and all this stuff, and she's dealing with all these emotions she doesn't know how to deal with. And then all of a sudden, sadness takes control of the emotional board. And all the other emotions are kind of standing back on the side, kind of going like, oh, no, we didn't want this to happen. We've been prevented from happening. Now it's happening. I don't know what we're going to do. They don't know what else to do. The board's halfway fried. Sadness takes over. And the little girl walks into her house because she realizes that she's okay to be sad. She gets in front of her Montana. And she's crying. She's tearing up as sadness is running the board. All the other emotions are watching. She's starting to tear up. And she starts to cry. I know you guys want me to be happy, but I'm really sad. I miss Minnesota. And and all of a sudden, the board comes back to life. Because sadness taking over is an integral part of her development as a human. And she leans into her mom and dad and says, we're not sad, we're not mad at you. And she leans in and she actually lets herself be sad. And she cries. And then at the end of that scene, right at the end, she's in her mom and her dad's arms and she's... <sighs> That's what sadness allows you to do. It lets you get to a point, even when we were here this morning, like it lets you get to a point of like, I'm sad, let me be real with those emotions, but at the end of it, it points me back to Jesus to say, he is coming back. He is going to make it all right again. But if I discount sadness and I ignore it, I'm not going to feel that emotion of like, he is coming. Lean into that emotion. Jesus did this the best of anyone holding this tension as the psalmist illustrates for us of um, what you're thinking and what you're feeling in the garden. He's with his best friends. People have been following him for three years. They still don't quite get it. And he says, go, go with me to a place. We need to pray. And as he's praying, his friends fall asleep. He's got to be frustrated, Right? And he goes and he prays again, and he's praying, and the, the scripture talks about he's praying so intensely, it's like drops of blood. And so don't tell me Jesus isn't feeling anything. Don't tell me he's going, well, I feel kind of, mm, I'm just going to push those things up. No, he's intensely identifying with his emotions. And then in that tension, he comes back to the Father and says, listen, if there's any other way, if there's any other way for this to happen, Let's do that. And the father says, no, this is the way. And in his emotion, in his frustration, he said, okay, I'm going to be obedient. And he leans in to his emotion in the midst of being terrible, the worst thing that's ever going to happen to anybody. He leans into it knowing the truth. He also, we talk about the psalmist feeling distant from God. Jesus felt the most distant. Think about the mountains where the psalmist is and the temple is far away. I don't know how many miles, it's far away. Jesus in the incarnation comes down from heaven to earth. The farthest distance 
But not only that, when he's on the cross, the father looks away. And he's totally disconnected from God. He gets disconnected so we can be connected. He allows us to be connected because of what he did on the cross. He has empathy all throughout the Gospels. Jesus has empathy. He looks upon the crowd and he has compassion on them because they're sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus trusts his father for vindication, for defense. 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23 talks about that. Like, if anybody could defend themselves rightly, if anybody in the history of mankind, it's Jesus to defend himself in the courtroom. You know what he does? He says nothing. He doesn't speak. And in 1 Peter 2, it talks about he entrusts to him who judges justly. Can we live that way, men and women? Can we live as Jesus, as the psalmist so beautifully pens for us, to hold this wrestle with our emotions and with the laments and with the hope that Jesus provides. That's my prayer for us today. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us here. God, you have wired us as humans on purpose to feel emotional, to be real with that emotion, but also to hold the truth, God, that you are our only hope. Father, thank you that we can cling to that truth. And in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about that you're going to wipe away every tear. God, you're going to make all things right again. Shalom will be put back in its proper function. God, help us hope in that reality today. We need you for that. God, help us engage with our friends, um, God, that are different than us that we would listen well to their stories. We'd be educated on the issues. And God, that we would sit with people in their sadness, not to fix them, but God, just to be with them. Thanks for Jesus for giving us hope today in this. We pray this in your son's name, amen.